0: Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckin' ears? What the fucksters? How's it going? I am Mark Marin. This is my show. This is WTF. Welcome to it. Hope you're having a good day, a good morning, good afternoon, whatever's happening. Uh, I am currently out of town. I'm uh, going to be doing a very uh, small bit in a large movie, uh, and maybe I'll stand out. Maybe it won't be just in passing. Maybe it won't be just, uh, Something I can use for the opening of my show. Lock the gates on these fuckheads. Remember that? That was my big... It's, I don't think that the part is much bigger, but uh, but I will be... Uh, I'll be trying to uh, to be in it, man. To make it funny. I'll tell you more about it another time. Let me tell you what's going on uh, with my schedule. Today on the show, Wyatt Sinek. Very funny comedian. Uh, also was a Daily Show correspondent. And we worked together years ago before anyone knew who he was uh you know doing some radio stuff and uh, always funny always uh, I do a show in Brooklyn he was out in LA for a few days that's happening shortly but I've got some dates coming up tomorrow night I will be in uh, Boulder at the Boulder Theater that's Friday uh July what is it 24th perhaps is that what it is this is the the coming to an end of the uh, the Marin tour and then on Saturday July 25th I'll be in Denver at the Paramount If you have not gotten tickets for that, you can go to wtfpod.com slash calendar. But listen to this. Exciting news for people across the pond. I'll be in Dublin at Vicker Street the 2nd of September. Uh, Tickets will be available tomorrow for purchase at ticketmaster.ie. And then, then, in London, going from Ireland to Britain, Uh, I will be in London at uh, South Bank Center, the 3rd and the 4th of September. Tickets for that will be available, today even, apparently, at ctickets.com and ticketmaster.co.uk. There you go. You got the info. It'll all be at wtfpod.com slash calendar, hopefully today. What else is happening? I I do have to... uh, Share some sad news that I didn't get to share on Monday because I'd already uh, recorded the show. Uh, but as we head into the last few episodes of Marin uh, tonight is uh, a very funny episode called Steel Johnson uh, that revolves around the character of my brother. Uh, but uh, those of you who've been watching the show, uh, and and of course those of you who who just know this man from his past work on the first episode of Marin, which was called stroke of luck. Uh, I had the, uh, the privilege of working with uh, Mr. Alex Rocco, um, who, who passed away on Sunday. And, uh, and, and I believe that, uh, our work together was his last role, uh, on television. I, I think in any medium and, um, it's very sad. As some of you who, you know, he lived a full life. He was 79 years old. Most people know him as uh, Mo Green from The Godfather. Uh, he was a great guy, and he was a funny guy, and he was, uh, my experience with him over the few days that we worked together, we were just thrilled to be working and, and loved being an actor. It was, uh, it was a privilege to work with him, and, and Elliot Gould was also in that episode. It was just great. It was just great. He, uh, he was a great guy. And, uh, in my limited experience of him and just a real pro man, I, you know, that part that uh, we had laid out for him, that scene, if you haven't seen the episode where, you know, he plays my, uh, my new agent who is, uh, you know, aging and he, uh, uh, right after I, I signed with him, he has a stroke and the scene in the hospital was, you know, beyond, I mean, we could barely get through it and he loved doing it and he, he, uh, I don't know, man. It, it it was just uh it was just an honor. And uh uh he will be missed. So rest in peace, Alex Rocco, and it was a pleasure and a privilege to work with you. Sad stuff, man. you, you know? Oh life does not last forever. Jeez. I'm I, I paused, but it just started fucking pouring. Can you hear that? Whoa, it's chaos here, chaos. Holy shit, listen to that, man. Today on the show, Wyatt Sinek is here, and we had an interesting conversation about, like, he got me thinking about something, about people in our lives. We, You'll hear the conversation, we talk, we have this uh, conversation about, he had a, a college teacher, I believe it was, who was uh, the the first guy to sort of blow his mind, like and this guy it, we it, we were ta- he was talking about the album "Let's Get It On" by Marvin Gaye and he had just taken it for granted as a record and this teacher uh, uh, you'll hear the story sort of explained to him that it was sort of a concept record uh, uh, about a guy who returns home from Vietnam and and I know that feeling and that and that that kind of forced him to look at everything in a different way that things were deeper than they may have seemed that you can't take anything for granted and there are these junctures in all of our lives where you're somebody somebody just does that to you and and I, I I have a lot of those because uh and I share this with um with Wyatt is that you know when you have a a father who is either you know fully absent or emotionally absent or detached or or that you could not connect with for whatever reason you sort of spend your life looking for them for better or for worse in, in people that are you know sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad but uh but those are the people that end up blowing your minds because you're so hungry for this guidance you're so hungry to learn, you're so hungry to to sort of um to 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 kind of be guided somehow and there's so many people like that in my life that I remember i I was always prone to idolizing people and and to to sort of glomming on to older dudes that you know like seemed like they had something to offer they led amazing lives like in uh in Early on in high school, there was the guys next door at the record store, Jim Regan, Steve LaRue. Jim Regan took me to his house. And we spent an entire afternoon there recording the history of soul music. He had all of the soul records, and we put it all on a cassette tape. I had a blind spot on all this old R&B, and he, he took me under his wing and sort of guided me through that. When I was looking at colleges, like I went to the University of Indiana to look at that school when I was like 17 or 18 and every time I went out of town then I just felt like this lost kid and I'd wander around looking in stores by myself and I went into some antique store and there's this really pretty lady there and I just kind of hung around this little teenage kid just hanging around talking about music and I remember she said she turned me on to Brian Eno and Richard and Linda Thompson I'm very grateful to her changed my fucking life these people change your lives. Yeah, man. And then later, I, when I was a little older in, in high school, Gus Blaisdell, the owner of the Living Batch Bookstore, I used to live there, man. Renegade intellectual, full tilt fucking funny, man. That guy made me, like, think about shit in a humorous way. I think that there's no one more responsible for my desire to be a comic and to be, uh, you know, to, to sort of look for a certain amount of intelligence in it than Gus Blaisdell. People changed my life. Sam Kennison, that was that was the wrong horse to bet on. But if I hadn't lost my fucking mind and done all that blow and spent all those hours with Sam Kennison, I don't know if I'd be the man I am today. Sometimes shit happens. There was a college professor I had, uh, Professor Orgel, philosophy teacher. Didn't learn hardly any philosophy, but uh, he had dinner parties and he was an amazing cook. And he inspired me to, to realize that uh, all you got to do is follow the directions to cook and you can make some amazing shit. Just people that changed my life. It's funny, man. In lieu of a dad, in lieu of, of having that. I mean, my dad was around, but it, there was a distance there, and he was a doctor, and you know, it was all about him. You know, I, we're okay now. I love the guy. There are just these moments in life where your mind just gets blown. Professor Green in college, we read The Crying of Lot 49, the pension book, which I could never wrap my brain around, but he put it in my head. Dr. Hayes in high school. The English teacher who uh, uh, he told me to write poetry. We wrote poetry, and he was an animated little guy that that sort of changed my life and my idea of, of how you can go through life and how you can create because of this little little man. He used to call himself the little brown man, and he'd dance around in an odd way. But he was uh, he he you know he encouraged me. There's just been so many people in my life that have done that that have been that that have that have guided me. I mean it certainly wasn't an easy journey by any means. But uh but the people that blow your mind early on or the people that you you never forget. I guess really what's happening with me is I get more it's not even nostalgic, man. It's just uh you know as less things bother me, there are new fears, but I sort of have to come to grips with who I am, where I've gotten, how I got here, who are the people that helped me and fought me along the way to define who I am, and be grateful for that. Be grateful. Don't always know how to do that. It's not my default position. My default is, why the fuck didn't I, how come I'm this, grateful, finally. Is that okay? If I have a little gratitude in my life? Jeez. It's pouring out there. It seems like it's let up. Seems like there was an outburst. There was a an angry outburst from the sky. Let's go to my conversation with uh, Wyatt Sinek, the very funny Wyatt Sinek, who has a uh, a great show in Brooklyn, Night Train, great space. But uh, here he is now with me in the garage. We don't need to bust each other's balls. We can be open and have a nice conversations. That's what I love about talking to you. Yeah. We don't yeah. have to you know, we don't have to be contentious. No to create tension. That's not what we're about, kinda. There's no false tension. No.
1: That is the one thing that I think I I always felt a little hurt by when people would always have like <laughs> Oh well, Marin did me wrong story and it's like <laughs> You were always cool to me. Yeah, like, you were good. You put me you were the first person that you put me on radio for the first time. Like you were you were always cool to me and then when I heard like oh no, Marin has this reputation with other people, it was like Did I offend did you, him in some way did that you miss out? Yeah. Maybe you missed out. Did I offend him in some way that I earned his
0: respect? No, we always got along, and that well, you know, you were my, you were my respect pretty quickly. So now it's all coming back to me. It's been a long time. So you, we got you. I think who was it? Seth Morris recommended you, or somebody recommended you out of the UCB to do the characters. I yeah, mean, right. Yeah, and you were doing that kind of stuff here, and you did that great. Uh, the the I, army guy. I did an
1: army. recruiter. The recruiter. It was a fun time. Yeah. So you're not living here though, right? No, no, no. I'm just here for a few days. I'm doing, doing like, what? I'm doing Conan tomorrow. Really? Yeah. New stand up. No, I just I'm just gonna go do some panel. I don't know what we're gonna do. I, actually, I like panel, yeah, it's fun. His show is so much fun,
0: yeah, he's got nothing to lose over there, really.
1: that's i there is like a freedom. I did it once before, and it felt like he was so cool to me yeah and I remember tenacious d were the musical guests, and we were chatting before they came out, and I remember him leaning over to me and he was like when they uh when they come over to the couch don't let them don't don't let them get on the couch and at first <laughs> i was i thought he was just sort of joking to kill time but he was serious and it so he didn't move i well they wound up grabbing me and andy and basically just like tackling us and moving <laughs> us down and it turned into this big four person group hug but just that invitation yeah. from conan meant everything where it was so great that he was like Oh no! Let's play around, and you can be in on the joke, right? And that was—I'd never, I'd never felt that. I've done other late-night shows, and that—and—and and that was such a weird thing, where it was like everyone else seems so, you know. Well, we have so much time for this segment, and we've got so much time for that segment, and we have to keep this thing moving. And he just kind of seemed like, yeah, no, don't it. move, and let's just have a weird thing happen.
0: Yeah, I it's, thank God someone's doing that on the tv shows but look let's go over it man all right let's get into it let's get into it because i don't think we got into it like i like we've I, never gotten into it well since your uh, departure from the daily show i've uh, pictured you uh like in some sort of self-assigned exile <laughs> that like <laughs> like i I've, uh, like i like i'll go do your show in brooklyn which is always good and when i see you you're like a, a singular man out there in Brooklyn, I always picture like, what's Wyatt doing? He's he's, <laughs> he's pulled himself out. He's regrouping. He's thinking. I'm like David Carradine. Yeah, yeah, kung you're, fu. He's just the wandering the the, the, the desert of self. <laughs> Wyatt is wandering the desert of self. But where
1: where do you come from? I uh, I was born in New York, New York City. New York City. I was born in in New York, and I I lived there for a little while. My mother and father lived there, and then my they split up when i was about a year old oh really young yeah my mother remarried and then maybe when i was about 3 my mother stepfather and i moved to texas and we moved to dallas texas what was he where what happened with the uh, original old man uh he like where is he now yeah he was murdered when i was 4 but you had a relationship with him yeah i mean he was i i would still go visit my grandmother my maternal grandmother lived in new york so i would spend time with her and then i would spend time with him as well and his brother uh who lived in new york as well like i would see them all and my grandmother even after he got killed like my grandmother did a good job of trying to keep you in the fold keep well at least keep talking about him because once he once he died my uncle left and moved back to grenada which is where my father was from Really? Yeah. He just got murdered. Yeah, he was a New York City cab driver, and he uh, took a fare up to Harlem, and then they robbed him and shot him.
0: God damn it!
1: Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. I just recently, like about a, a maybe two years ago, uh, a friend of mine connected me to uh, an NYPD detective who pulled up the file and I got to see everything
0: they had pictures of the scene
1: they didn't have pictures of the scene but there was I always knew where it happened but then this sort of laid it out in this way of oh well the car you know once he was shot he died on this you know instantly and then his foot was on the gas and it the car went across the like the median and crashed into some cars and so and then there were some witness accounts and stuff like that it was really amazing and then through it by at the end of it all there is the there's the guy like they caught the guy and i had his whole rap sheet and it's it was weird to just see that and to just get a fuller picture of that that guy and he lives in he lives in brooklyn and there's like a whole kind of weirdness of just Oh wow, this person, like I I've seen his whole life. I see his rap sheet. He's He didn't stay in jail after murder? No, he did. He got a really short sentence for it. He was I think he was 16 when he did it. And so even that it's kind of amazing because I just think about like he was 16 and this thing like it just set him on a path and you look at his rap sheet and it's just I think he did I think he did six years on a 12-year stint for that because he was already locked up for something else. And then I think they they were like, oh, you did this too, and they figured it out. And so then he got he got six on a 12, got out, then went in and out for other things. Weirdly enough, was doing time in North Carolina – at the same time, I was in college in North Carolina. Where'd you go? I went to a university in North Carolina. But it's just strange these little sort of intersections of life where it's like, oh yeah, we were both in the we were both in North Carolina at the in same a different, time, different institution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> different different state run institution. <laughs> both not the best football teams, <laughs> really underperforming football teams in both situations.
0: But wait, so now. The dude who murdered your biological father lives
1: in the same city as you. Yeah.
0: As a free man.
1: Yeah. As far as I know, I don't know if he's gone back in for something. But when did you go
0: look all this shit up?
1: This was maybe like two years ago that I I got connected with this detective. I'd always, my mother never talked about him, talked about my father. So I never knew whether or not they had ever caught the guy. And so I would always do little research on my own. Like I found his obituary yeah. and uh, looking through old newspapers, and so I found that, and, yeah. I, and that meant something to me and gave me a little bit more of a picture. Were you curious about it? I mean, were you? Did I've you- always been curious, about it. I mean, that's the thing. Like you, you know, to lose somebody at that age, and especially a man. parent, and in a way like that, it's a weird. It was always a strange thing that I never you know, I don't know if I've ever totally reconciled with, but it always, it was always a thing that I, I wanted information on. I wanted to learn more. How could you not? Yeah. And that's, and so I knew, like my father had other kids before, before my, before he married my mother. And so I knew I had half siblings. Did you find them? I did. I I found, or they found me, right before I got The Daily Show, I got interviewed on CNN for something, and my half-sister's sister saw it, and maybe her mother, like, her her sister and her mother saw it, and because my father was Wyatt Cenac Sr. You kept the name? Yeah. Hmm. I didn't, I, when I was little, my, my mother and my stepfather changed it after my dad died. Yeah. But then... I changed it back once I like I had to graduate college, and then I could change it back. So they sought you out. So they reached out via MySpace, and then yeah, I wound up talking to my sister a little bit, and then I talked to a couple of my brothers. Wow. Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. It was also just interesting because did you feel it? Did you meet him? Did you see him? No, I felt it. It always felt weird. It always because we would talk on the phone and even talking to my sister. My, like as a four-year-old, I had this very sort of heroic image of my, my father. Sure. And where- That's I, the trick they pull on us. <laughs> <laughs> especially especially when they're murdered. Yeah, that's, <laughs> of course. That's like, they're like, oh no, I want him to think of me in the best light. I, I'll go get murdered. <laughs> mythic. Yeah. But no, there really was this sort of mythic Im- image I had of him. Yeah. And, and because my mother never talked about him- I never, I never, I just had to fill in the blanks. My grandmother would tell me things, and then it was me filling in all the other blanks. And he
0: had this whole life in Grenada, right? He grew up there. He
1: grew up in Grenada, but then he was in New York for a long time, and so he had kids in Grenada, he had kids in New York. And I just remember when I was talking to my my sister, who was a few years older than me, and her description of my father was that he was a deadbeat and uh-huh. he wanted nothing to do with her. Right. And so it was this very strange thing of... The myth chipping away. Yeah, and him becoming human in that, Ugh. oh, he's, you know, he wasn't <laughs> as great as...
0: <laughs> as I remember as a four-year-old. Yeah, <laughs>
1: as I wanted, as four-year-old me wanted to believe him to be. And so, yeah, so it's so it was a very strange thing. And so we we talked a little bit, but there was always this element of, Oh yeah, we while we are family, our connection to each other it's it's so different. And But there was none of that, so you're doing pretty well for yourself. No. Oh good. No. Yeah. It's yeah, no, it was it because was, it was thankfully I think because they caught me right before I got the Daily Show. Right. I think there was at least something about it where it was like, okay, I know this is pure. Like, yeah, right, right, genuine. The, right. Yeah, it the,
0: wasn't opportunistic. Yeah,
1: it's yeah. not like I saw you on CNN. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> how about coming up, uh, coming off some of that yeah. that Genie Moose appearance sure. cash? Yeah, yeah. Where's the Wolf Blitzer money? Yeah, where's the
0: the? Uh, all right, so do you have any uh, compulsion to
1: meet his murderer? Not really. Yeah. No. I and people have asked me that once. I once I sort of discovered it and everything, and I kind of I was just like I don't really have anything to say to the dude. Like it's if anything, there is a part of me where I I look at him and what he did, and I there's a sense of you know he is he is partially responsible for me being who I am, in a good way kind of yeah yeah right. i mean it's it's i've actually joked about it on stage because it it is this thing where it's like i'm not going to send him a father's day card but there is this element of like oh no this this was a traumatic event that changed me in in the way i saw the world mm-hmm. and you're the person that did that like you who knows who knows how differently my life would be. I, I'm assuming it would probably. I'd probably still be in the same place, right? But maybe my father would have been the deadbeat that uh, he was to my sister, to me, and maybe I would have dealt with that, or maybe I'd have right. gone to New York and lived with him, and it would have changed my impression of him in that way, or something. The whole know. trajectory. Yeah. Who knows?
0: You know, like if you grew to favor him over your mother, who the hell knows where that would have went?
1: Yeah, but it's wild. But so in that way, it is like. Oh, yeah, this one thing, like that idea of the butterfly effect or something like that. Like, oh, this is that one instance of, oh, yeah, here it is. That's, yeah.
0: All right. So your mom remarries a dude and he becomes your father for the most part?
1: Yeah. I, uh, yeah, he was. So it was my mother, my stepfather. And then I had a cousin that moved in when uh, he was 10, I was 13. So that became. The family S- sort of the family yeah what what'd he do what'd he do to your, your stepfather, to, oh, my stepfather he was he was a, an accountant, he worked for American Airlines, and so he like was a number cruncher, for I them. like American, I fly American, you sometimes I tend to fly delta, uh, yeah, it, which I guess that could be seen as some sort yeah. of edible struggle,
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is he still around,
1: yeah, are they still together? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. We don't talk. You and your mom? No, I don't talk to either of them. Wow. Yeah. What the fuck happened? It was not a good relationship. Ever? I don't think it ever was, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. No. I think, you know, I think it's 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 as good of a relationship as an adult and a child can have where, yeah, a child is dependent on said adult for survival, hmm. but... There was never a real closeness. Like she would try to get close and I was never into it and I didn't really there wasn't a lot of trust. We didn't trust either like either one of us. We didn't really trust each other. From age 4 or 5? I don't know. I don't know at what age it started. But they took care of you. They did take care of me, yeah. They sent you to school. They did, yeah. So they covered that stuff. They did, yeah. They did cover that stuff. How about but, your cousin? You talked to your cousin? I still I still talk to him. I that's still, good. Yeah, I still talk to him. He just got married. I think at some point there there just became a moment where, especially with my mother, like my stepfather and I weren't. It, it was always a weird relationship. But then with my mother, it kind of turned into a thing where I felt like, you know, if we weren't family, we probably like that's the thing that is keeping us talking to each other. Is that yeah. is this sense of obligation and We don't really get along, and we get into arguments. And my mother was very manipulative and would kind of try to control me and control the situation. And I remember when I started working in television, she I thought she was joking, and she was like, I want to be your manager. And I was like, you don't know anything about this. You sell insurance. And she got really upset in a way that was – Like, oh, no, I've I've hurt her feelings. And that was something I grew up with, which was that my stepfather would always like he'd be like, you know, give your mother her way. Like just she may be wrong, but give her her way, because the other side of it was if she was upset. She wouldn't talk to me for like an extended period of time, like so for a it, week or something like that. Right. So it was like,
0: just let her do 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 what she wants, and then we can all live peacefully.
1: Yeah. And at some point for me, it was kind of like, I don't like being this person's sort of puppet. Yeah. And Yeah. I and so I wanna I like and at some point as I started to make my own life decisions, for me there was a there was a thing where I was like. I need to break away. I need to, I, I need the space to make my own mistakes. I need the space to make my own decisions without having somebody trying to control my life and, and control it in a way where, you know, she would be in my life. Making in, choices for you. Trying to make choices. How long has it been since you talked to them? Her. The last time I saw her, I was living here in LA. And I'd done a show, and she showed up uninvited to the show. In L.A.? In L.A. It was, Where'd
0: you grow up? Where'd she live?
1: She lives in Texas. Huh. And so it was shortly after I'd said, like, we shouldn't speak anymore. Like, this isn't... This hurts me. And so I did a show at the... It was the old Comedy Central stage.
0: Yeah, the Hudson Theater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I did a show. I did, like, a showcase there and it was a it was like a one person show and so i do the show and then she came backstage and was sort of acting as though everything was cool and wasn't acting like there was a problem at all and i was like this this was what i felt like my life was which was you live in texas and you <laughs> like you just showed up like you like you showed up and you invaded the place where I feel the safest which is you know backstage after a show and I'm like I'm more thinking about that and then this person who shows up uninvited after I've told them hey leave me alone like this is this isn't a good relationship like let's like let's not see each other yeah and then walked backstage like it wasn't even like somebody came and said hey there's somebody who wants to talk to you just rolled up backstage and i remember we just started yelling at each other and i was doing most mostly yelling and i was just like what are you doing here like get out of here this is what a stalker does no and, boundaries yeah and so then she was like you know she tried to be calm about it and was like let's just talk and i was like no go away and then I, that was the last time we saw each other and I don't know what she, I assume she went to her rental car and, you know, was probably upset and then I don't know if she got, like
0: seven years ago.
1: Oh no, no. That was a long time ago. That was shit. I mean, I was, I've been, I've been in New York for eight years. That was probably, it was over a decade ago. Wow. Yeah. It was over a decade ago. And you're okay with it? Yeah, I'm cool with it. Yeah. Cuz we've talked we uh, we talked once on the phone a few years back and that wasn't very cool. She kind of like my my aunt, I have an aunt who's in her 90s and my aunt called me worried because they thought my mother was like I don't know what, like they were just like your mother was on the phone with one of your aunts and she got off suddenly and like she's acting really weird. Maybe she'll talk to you and I called her, and I was like, what's going on? And she was just like, oh, it's so great to talk to you. And I was like, hold up a second. Why does everybody think you were, like, they... they, In trouble. Yeah, they thought you were in trouble. No, no, there's no trouble, but now that I'm talking to you, let's talk. And I was like, no, no, this is... You just tricked a 90-year-old woman into having me call you oh. and so then it was like we won't do this again but you feel like you know it's like it's so tricky with
0: that shit you know because i have like strained relationships but you know and i don't i never went that long but it, you you it's weird you, you're okay it's
1: weird is you know what it's definitely weird because there's definitely moments in your life where you know i you you hear other people talk about their family and you hear you know people who have this weird, here?
0: this love for their parents.
1: Well, I have love. Look, yeah. I have, I have love. There's love there, but it's, it's also one of those things where I know there's love there, but it's better separate. Right, right. You got it, it's self protection in a way. Yeah, and so there's definitely a sense where you see the relationships other people have with their families, and it's kind of like a little sad. It's a little sad, but at the same time, it also feels like well, this is the healthiest thing for me. I still. I have like an old email address and for a while my mother would send emails and I kept the address open basically because it felt like she needed she needed right. this outlet she right. needed something and maybe on some level I needed it too because at least it kept her at bay in a way that my biggest fear and it was a fear that I had as a kid because there would be times where as a kid My mother might show up somewhere or she would have somebody like spy on me and do shit like that. Like it was a really paranoid house growing up where I remember one time I was supposed to, I was supposed to leave my car at a certain place and I I was picking up this, this girl that I was seeing at the time. we were going to go to Six Flags amusement park. So I was supposed to leave my car on one side of town, Six Flags on another side of town, both Far from where my folks live. And so I go pick up the girl. She's like, we should drive to Six Flags together. It'd be romantic because we were supposed to ride with her sister. And I was like, well, I don't know. My mom says that. You know. yeah. And then she kind of like touched my leg and it was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. We drive and I had to take the highway. And I think that was like, my folks didn't want me on the highway. Get there, fine come back and my mother used to make me carry around this cell phone, one of those big, big ass car phones, phones ringing nonstop. The girl answers it and I, and I'm just like, I immediately hang it up and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And then I eventually answer it. And my mother's like, you know, why didn't you pick up the phone? I was like, I don't know if you called the right number. This is the first time it rang and <laughs> I dropped the, I dropped the girl off and I get home And as I'm pulling into the driveway, I see my stepfather has been tailing me at some point and his car is coming behind mine. And so he somewhere picked me up on the road, followed me back in the back to our house. What I learn is that my mother sent somebody to go see if my car was where it was supposed to be. And this is what she tells me later. She goes send see if my car is where it's supposed to be when it's not she calls the police no one i took it she calls the police thinking that the police will pick me up and i'll learn a lesson how old were you i was probably 17 and so so there was and so and then when i get home like she has sort of opened up all of like all my papers anything that i had like locked up and like i i used to keep like a briefcase where I could kind of lock things up all that stuff is spread out on her bed and on the kitchen table and it was one of those things where it's almost like the police have come in and raided the place and they're just going through everything but it's like violating violating in a way that was like this doesn't even have anything to do with the crime at, at hand like the the crime right. was that I took a car I took a car on the highway you're now looking at this as like well let's go through his diary yeah let's basically go through all this shit and so there was always that sense of violation and so when she showed up that day at that show it was kind of like it all came back it all came back and that's what I lived with was this constant sense of you never know (sighs) who you never know who's your real friend like there was there was a there was a girl i knew she's actually she's uh uh she a girl i grew up with she at one point told me that my mother had asked her to befriend me just to keep an eye on you yeah and just to report information a mole. Back. but yeah and she did that to my roommate one of my roommates when i lived out here and she was like tell me like just keep me in the loop on stuff and it was just like this very strange paranoid distrustful and- house so in a weird way, keep at least keeping that email account alive. It was like, okay, uh, at least I know she's fucking right. communicating through this. But you did nothing to warrant, like nah. you weren't a bad kid. Nah, nah, no. Nah. Nah. I, I think I, you know, I don't know if I had to take a guess. Yeah, it's like her father, her father wasn't a part of her life. Like he, I think, run out on on her and my grandmother, then her first husband who while she's not married to is murdered yeah and whether or not you find love again or whether or not you're in another relationship like that still hits that still hits in a way i like there's somebody i like i was there was somebody that i loved and she died last year of cancer and she was somebody that like I would kind of like get in and out of a relationship with every now and again. And we tried to make things work and it's truly been one of those things that it's like, like we weren't married or anything like that, but that definitely has affected the way that I look at relationships now. So I think I look at all that stuff with my mother and it's like, you lost your father, you lost your first husband and even just divorce. I mean, you lost that aspect of it too. It makes sense that you would be really controlling of the other man in your life, your child. The abandonment issue, the fear. Yeah, and so I think it became this overprotective thing of like, well, I don't want to lose this one. And then almost like a Greek tragedy, it's like everything you did in your attempt not to lose this one. Yeah, puts you away. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe someday you guys can hash it out. I feel like we have, like, I mean, we've talked about it over, like, you know, like she would always email and be like, just tell me what I've done. And I told her and it's just like, (laughs) I've told you, I don't know why you're not hearing it. And I, and so then, and it's funny because I wound up, I wound up talking about some of this stuff on another podcast and then. There was an email that came through, like, a, and I was really nervous about talking about it because it was the first time I'd ever talked about it, sort of publicly in that kind of a way. And I remember this email came through that account, and the email, like, the subject line was something like, "I can hear you now," but it wasn't. It, it wasn't even a sort of, "All right, I get it. I'm going to respect your space." It yeah. was just kind of like, still, still the same, right. still the same song. Was well, she stubborn? stubborn but i also think like there's i think there's something i think there's something there's more there mentally ill possibly right i think there's more there yeah. but so you managed to uh, to get away and go to college i did yeah that was i mean college honestly that was escape like that was i as a kid i always dreamed of running away yeah and was terrified of it and then college college was that attempt was just like oh no now this is running away this is i got offered a scholarship to go to school in state at like university of texas and i wound up saying how far can i go that's not because i'd seen i'd seen how far their reach could go that like oh no they will drive somewhere if they're not happy, they drive to Texas. Yeah. They drive from Dallas to Austin. That's yeah. not that far. Right, right, right. North Chapel Hill, North Carolina, it was like Alright, they're not gonna get on an airplane right. <laughs> and then, and then drive forty five minutes from the airport to yeah. to to this college. So it was like, Oh no, I'm gonna get away and then I went to college and I I just remember the first semester of college, I almost failed out just because the freedom was so much And it wasn't even a freedom of like, I'm going to drink and I'm going to smoke. It was just, I can wake up whenever I want. And I don't (laughs) have to go to class if I don't want to. And when I I first got in, like she had said, you know, you should take these classes. You should sign up for these classes. And I hated those classes. And I never went to those classes. And then at some point, halfway through my first semester, I remember – I was failing out, yeah. And then they sent, uh, they sent like they would send like a midterm report to your house, and so I'm in the shower, and yeah. my roommate comes knocking on the, on the on the door of the bathroom, and he's like, "Hey, your folks are on the phone," and I was like, "Well, I'm on the shower. I'm in the shower. I'll call them back." And so, and he goes back, and a minute later, he's like, "They're not getting off the phone. They're saying get off the shower, get out of the shower," and so I'm just like oh, shit, like, you know, I'm thinking, did somebody die? Like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. I go in, and uh, I don't even have to put the phone next to my ear. My mother and stepfather screaming so loud about my grades at that point and just, like, you're failing out of everything? We will come down there? And my roommate and his girlfriend can hear the whole thing, and it's just this very strange. It was, like... It was this thing of, oh, shit, I have to get my act together because I don't want to go back there. Like that was that was like, you know, I'm not going back. Yeah. And that was I mean, that house like it was, you know, there was a lot. There was a lot of distrust. There was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of that stuff. So it was like, oh, right. I don't want to go back. But I'm also not this student that she wants me to be. I have to figure out who I am and I've got to figure out like the classes I need to take to make this work so I never have to go back there and then in the summers I would never go back I would stay in North Carolina nice and, place there so what'd you end up studying uh, I was a communications major because I didn't have a TV film department right so they just wrapped it into communications yeah and so I took like some film some film and TV classes that I could take in there and I took like some performance classes you're doing that uh, you were doing some sketch comedy or what? or uh, acting or what I did a little of everything I remember I remember I did this one I did this one class it was like a it was a performance class and we had to do we had to take the lyrics of a song and reinterpret them into a performance and you just had to do the lyrics as written but perform them in some way and I did a song that I really loved but never fully understood what song it was Marvin Gaye's flying high in a friendly sky yeah and I just it just spoke to me the just like the sadness of addiction like it's just it's Uh. just a song it's just a junkie song of like how he's struggling like I know I shouldn't be doing this but I can't help it like this thing has this thing has a hold on me in this way that I can't I just can't let go of it and it's really sad and really beautiful, and that whole album, like the the What's Going On album, is a it's an amazing album because the whole thing, there are no breaks in it. Yeah, it's all. It's like crowd
0: noise, like party noise, right? Like Eric well, there's right.
1: one song that's like that, but there's the whole thing is made with no actual break. But there's two songs on there that they are the exact same instrumentation, but he's just flipped it. And so all this all the all the sounds you hear in the foreground become the background of the second song. Wow! And vice versa. And huh. it's just it's it's an amazing album. I gotta and get that record. You you should. It's my uh, I had an English professor. This professor Lee Green, and he he was like my favorite person at Carolina, and was kind of like this sort of it went beyond English class in this way of like, I'd see him on campus and he'd kind of like, how you doing? You doing all right? And it was this kind of almost paternal like thing. You need that guy. Yeah. And that's, I think I've always kind of sadly looked for those kind of people in my life. Like, Oh yeah, here's somebody. But he was that guy that was just like, even in class, like our class was English class, but he talked to us about art. Right. He taught you how to think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And see things. Yeah. In that way. Yeah. Where you're like, holy shit, bigger
1: world out there. Yeah. And he was more than the academic idea of a professor. He was just like he was just a man that was talking to all of us like adults, and just happened to be an he just happened to be the one adult who knew more than us. And he was excited.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need that guy, man. Where you're like, "Oh, really? I never thought of that." So you had that experience where you, the song just hits you like that. Where you're like, "Oh my god!"
1: Yeah, and it was an
0: amazing moment to have with a piece of uh, art.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's. I mean, from soup to nuts, that whole album. Because the whole thing is like the whole, th- the whole album is about a guy coming back from the war, and then his whole life of just the the sort of depression that one goes into of coming back home and what's going on is all about i just got back from war what's happening like i've missed everything and then it goes into the struggle of trying to get a job and like i can't get a job i i was promised that this country was going to take care of me and I, I'd have a job waiting for me when I got back, I got nothing. So I sink into the of sadness and drinking and drugs. And that's flying high in a friendly sky is all about that. And then the sort of second half of the album is coming out of that. And it's the redemption of, you know, cleaning yourself up and seeing like, okay, it's bigger than me and I've got to do something for the children. And I don't want children to have to go through, The same thing that i went through wow and it's really it's it's a it's an amazing album and it was like some of it was influenced by his brother and his brother's experience coming back from war i believe and yes it's amazing like that understanding that album is like a pivotal point in your life kind of yeah it was it was changed everything you're Mm -hmm. like shit is deep it really, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was one of those where it was just like, "Fuck, thanks, Professor Green." Like this, <laughs> this, and I don't even know why we were talking about it. We were supposed to be reading, right? You're telling me about this record. Now I got to get the record. Yeah, you do. I got a lot of records. I don't have that record. That's that's one I've got. I've got that one. I I think I've got, I think I've got two versions. They did like a repressing, but then I think I have the original. I think I have an, an original, or at least like you know, a second or third printing. So how do you get into show business? I, again, in that sense of wanting to run away from home, I'd always wanted to be a performer. I'd always loved that, but I never thought it was something that I could do. And especially in Texas. But you graduated. I graduated, but it was actually before I graduated I realized I could do it. And I'd been into it as a kid, but I never thought I could do it. And I'd actually taken one of those, what color is your parachute tests when I was in high school. And it was to get into an internship program. I don't know what that is. You never take, they're one of those tests that you could take. You can find them online and they, you take this like long ass test and then it says, these are careers you might be best suited for. And so it's like, well, you might be best suited to be a lawyer or something like that. And, so I took mine, and mine—the first answer that came back was stuntman. Yeah, that was actually on there.
0: That was. That- yeah,
1: and I got really excited. I remember I told my stepfather, and he was like, "You can still be a doctor." Yeah. And so
0: <laughs> don't don't let that misguide you. Yeah,
1: yeah. But so there wasn't there wasn't a sense that I, I think from family, you know, my grandmother probably she was the one person who was like, "I want you to do whatever you want to do," and she was the one who introduced me to comedy. And so, and I was always, How a, so. she, I would watch old, I love Lucy episodes with her. And then, I mean, when I was a kid, the Cosby show was huge. Yeah. And so she gave me Bill Cosby's fatherhood to mm-hmm. read. And I just remember thinking that was the funniest thing. And for a long time I would watch the Cosby show and I would, I would think, oh, I want to be a doctor. And then I remember going and learning about what a doctor was and I was like, oh no, I want to be a comedian. Yeah. yeah yeah it's <laughs> a lot of work, the yeah, doctor part, but I had to keep this as, i had to keep this a secret, and yeah. so even like I did like a high school play once and i i was supposed to have like a serious part and I wound up making it funny and I loved that feeling, but it all felt like a secret and then when I was in college, I got an internship at Saturday Night Live. How'd you get it? You just applied for it? no, so i had i was watching later with bob costas yeah and he was interviewing rob schneider right and rob schneider in the interview said like costas asked him how'd you get on snl and he said something to the effect of i sent a tape or i sent a letter or something like that and so this show was on at like one in the morning and i I remember thinking like wait that's it that's all you got to do is send them something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they And I thought, I must be getting this secret because I'm the only one who's up Why? this late watching this show. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sent them a letter and I put some sketches in it. And I wrote this letter and I was like, I would really like to be a writer, cast member on your show. Here are some sketches that I wrote. And you thought that would work. I thought it would work. And they sent it back and they said, they sent like a note, uh, a top note that said, we're not allowed to read sub- submissions. And me and kind of the stupidity of a 19-year-old was like, you can't read them or you won't read them. And so I just sent it back. And for about six months, I kept sending them letters saying, like, I'd really like a job. And the letters started to get more desperate where I was like, look, obviously, I want to be a cast member. I'd love to be a writer. I'll also take an internship. Yeah. And so I think maybe to keep me from sending letters and maybe also because the guy felt bad for me there was one of i would send him to lauren's office because i didn't know where to send him and so one of lauren's assistants this guy named matt Enstis, he one day called me out of the blue and he was just like hey we keep getting your letters and i'm the person who like i'm the person who has to read these (laughs) and uh like uh if you really want an internship you need to reach out to this woman karen nathanson here's the per she's the person to talk to and so i wrote her a letter and then they they said can you fly up and interview and i just started college again i started my sophomore year yeah i flew up i met i had a meeting with karen nathanson i remember walking into 30 rock and just being in awe of all of it and then she was like yeah do you want to come back you know we're about to do the first show." Which was Tom Petty, uh, but I couldn't. I, I still had to go back to school and pack up and all that stuff, and so I was like, yeah, I totally want to do this. And I I remember I flew back to I flew back to North Carolina. My mother and stepfather were they were really upset. They were against it, and they were just like, we don't want you to do it. And this was maybe that first moment of like, this is who I want to be, and you have to kind of respect that. And so eventually they relented, and they were like, all right, fine. I went back to New York. I lived with my grandmother. Got to spend a lot of time with her and then because I wasn't in school, my internship, I would be there 6 days a week and so I just saw and tried to soak up as much of SNL as I could. I never thought I was going to go back to school. I kind of thought and even people at school never thought that I was coming back. Like people were like, "Oh, you're they're going to love you. Like you're going to go out there and they're like they're gonna love you and like, cause, yeah. cause I the one thing I knew about SNL I knew like Eddie Murphy had gotten SNL when he was like eighteen, and right? So I was like, okay, I'm nineteen, like I'm a year behind, but
0: <laughs> yeah, you picked that guy, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, so yeah, so I I was there, and then I remember when it was over, it was kind of like, oh shit, I have to go back to school, I don't want to go back. That's not. That's not what I want to do, but I'm, I also, I'm Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I'm gonna run way behind schedule if yeah. I go back to school. Yeah, this is I'm now I'm this is taking me off track. And, yeah, but then I didn't have anything else to do, so I went back to school. I finished school, and then they offered me a job. SNL. They were very nice. They offered me a job as a receptionist when I graduated. If I wanted a job, and I remember thinking nobody goes from receptionist to cast member. I don't think that's how it works from what I learned in my time there. And so I I, I politely declined and I said, I, I really appreciate it. And then I figured, you know what? I'll go to LA, I'll make my bones there. And then if I do well enough, like the goal was to always go back to New York and it right. was to go to SNL. So it was like, if I make my bones there and I do well enough, They'll see it, and I'll get a job like that. And so then I went to L.A., and I was there for nine and a half years, and I never got SNL. But you were doing
0: sketch, and you were doing writing, and you were doing, like, what were some of the gigs you had?
1: For a long time, I was doing, I started doing sketch first. I was doing, like, sketch and improv stuff when I first got out here. I'd done stand-up in college. After the SNL internship, I started trying to do stand-up, and then... I got really parent, uh petrified. Like the first time I still have the tape, an audio tape of it. First time I did stand up they gave me three minutes. Where? I burned uh Charlie Goodnights. Oh yeah, that room. Yeah, it can be hard. It wasn't even that the room was hard, it was just the fear of having never been on stage and Yeah. That's an old timey comedy club. Yeah, I just went back for the first time. Oh, you did it? It's I, just Goodnights now. Yeah. So you worked a weekend? I, I did I just did a one nighter there. And it was so weird to be in the same space that I, like, 20 years later. And and it's sort of the same. It looks exactly the same. Yeah. And I I think I tried to tell one of the jokes I told. Really? The first time. Did you set it up like that? Yeah, because it was not a good joke. Right. It was, yeah. How'd it go? I think the joke was, because it was after I'd I'd come back from SNL, so I was writing a lot of Weekend Update type jokes. And I'd read some article about how... In West Virginia, they just passed a law that allowed you to keep your roadkill. And so the punchline was like, so now Food Lion's biggest competitor is Ford or Dodge or some shit like that. It was just a stupid ass joke. And I was like... Yeah, surprisingly, I kept doing this. Like it? it was,
0: well, I had some heart in it. It's some social commentary.
1: Well, that was, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was topical. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was foreshadowing of things to come. That's great that
0: you went back there.
1: Yeah, but yeah, so when I came to LA, then I came out and I wasn't doing stand up at first. I was just doing improv and sketch because there was the safety of having other people on stage. But then at some point, I kind of, I missed stand up and. It was honestly, do you know Laura Kraft? Mm-mm. She's, uh, she's a comedian. She's out, she lives out here, but she's the one who kind of got me back in the stand up because she used to do this show at Improv Olympic called The Extravaganza. And yeah. it was like this weird mishmash of an open mic where people would do s- sketches, they'd do characters, they'd do music. And it was a Sunday night show. And she was on the road, she was going to Chicago to open for Jeff Garland and so she asked me to host the show in her place and the way she would host it was that she would never have anything prepared she would just talk about her week and yeah. she would kind of start off by saying here's why my week is more interesting than yours and then she would just talk about her week and so she asked me to fill in for her for a few weeks while she was on the road and i just was like oh shit i miss this like this is i and i wanted i i kind of want back in and so then that's what got me back back in was, okay, I'm not afraid to be up here by myself anymore. And I'm not afraid of the silence. And I'm not afraid of the eyeballs in the way that I was when sure. I first started doing it well, in yeah. North Carolina. And then I got a job at King of the Hill as a writer there. And I was I was a writer for four seasons. Were, you, write, were you writing with Jammin' and Glarum? I was, yeah, yeah, because when I did your show, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we had offices right next to each other, yeah, and yeah, those guys are great, yeah, and yeah, Sievert and Michael, and yeah, it was, it's, it's weird to see, just even the people that I worked with, like they're doing that, and then there's a guy, Aton Cohen, who he went on to, uh, he just directed that movie Get Hard, and he wrote Tropic Thunder, and he like he. Wrote a bunch of like really amazing screenplays and They're stuff. in it, man.
0: People keep in the business.
1: Yeah. And like, uh, Altrueler and Krinsky, who were like the showrunners when I was there, they, they created Silicon Valley with Mike Judge. And so it was just, it was a, and that was a really, uh, just to, as a job, it was a really cool job, but it was also a strange job because I was the youngest writer there and everyone else was like married with families and I was just like, in my twenties and... But
0: you get the experience.
1: Oh no, the experience was great. And I think what was great too about the experience was even in doing it, it helped me get out of debt because I'd racked up a lot of debt, but then it also showed me so much about just television and also reminded me that, oh, this is fun, but it's not the exact thing I want to do that. I like writing, but I also like performing yeah. and, and, The longer I do this job, the harder it gets to walk away from... The money, the health coverage. That lifestyle, yeah. That it's like, the longer you're a writer... And that's honestly why I left, was the realization that... Oh, yeah, my agents, they want me to take another writing job. And they want me to keep writing. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to get to a point where... Yeah, I may have a mortgage. And the notion that... I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take a year off and just focus on stand-up or just try to, you know, focus on being a performer, that would be so much more difficult with if you had a mortgage, if you had a family, if you had all these other things. And so or just a job. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, like, it's hard to walk away from a job sometimes.
1: Yeah, but I walked, but it was walking away was this sense that, oh, no, I got to walk away if I really want to try to, build my own thing i gotta walk away and and,
0: I, and then what happened
1: uh i had enough money saved up for maybe like to cover me for like a year or two i uh, i blew through all that and over the course of like four years blew through all my money lost my apartment my car got repoed i had to move in with a friend of mine uh, this comedian named laura swisher and i i had to I know leave. her I had to I had to move in with her, and I had nothing, and it was like, it was dark. It was just kind of like fuck. It felt like oh, there is nothing for me here. Like this city is a is spitting me out. Like it's. But your well, your agent's probably like he doesn't want to do nothing. Well, no, because even at some at one point, you know, you're talking four years of not working. There were times where it was just like look, if there's something out there, I'll take it, and I even, at one point, I think I even went back to uh, my showrunners at King of the Hill after about two or three years, and I'd heard that there was an opening, and I was like, if you if you need a writer, and they, and, and they said no, and I'm grateful that they did, but it was like, fuck, like, there's, like, I'm drowning, and it was, it was bad, and it was just like, oh, shit, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this, and I'd kind of resigned myself. Like I was borrowing money from Laura and I had to, I had to borrow cash. At one point I met a woman. We were going to go on a date and I had to borrow cash. I had to borrow like 20 bucks from Laura. I borrowed another 20 or maybe 40 bucks from, uh, Marsha. And I had 60 bucks plus maybe like another 20 to my name to take this woman out on a date she immediately ordered a bottle of wine and I had to come clean and just like, yeah, I got no money. And, and that, and I, and that was like, that $80 was basically like, yeah, that's what I got right now. And I've just got to figure out how I'm going to get some money after this. Like after this date, I will live off of Laura's kindness for as long as I can, but I got to figure out a thing. And I wound up getting a gig, doing some voiceover for a Nickelodeon cartoon it wasn't, like, serious money, and I was just kind of, like, struggling. And then I got a call to audition for The Daily Show, and I didn't want to do it, and my manager talked me into it. Why didn't you want to do it? Because I'd auditioned, like, three times before yeah, and never gotten it. And when I'd auditioned, like, I remember folks at Comedy Central, like, Bart Coleman was at Comedy Central at the time, and he was he was a big, like... I, we think you'd be perfect for this. We're going to fight for you. Right. And I'd audition three times, three or four times, never gotten it. So I was kind of like, they've seen me. They don't want this. What I learned was that they never, the Daily Show never watched those tapes. Right. And so, but Comedy Central, like there would always be these auditions. and right. so I, So this time they let me write my own thing and I wrote something and that was honestly what got me the job. They even told me. Yeah, the thing you wrote, it was there was so much of your personality in it and but I didn't want to do it at first and my manager talked me into it and I went I did it and then the same day that I was supposed to fly out to test for it I was also supposed to interview for this job on this show the Chocolate News that David Allen Greer had. Yeah. They took me to breakfast right before I got on the plane to go to to New York. And they offered me the job uh, for Chocolate News. And then I got on the plane and I assumed, like, well, I'm not going to get The Daily Show. I would love to get this show. I would love to get this opportunity. Because this is also full circle. Like, The Daily Show didn't exist when I was, you know, looking... When I was like, I want to be on SNL. SNL. Yeah. But what I wanted to do on SNL was I wanted to do Weekend Update. Mm-hmm. And so... Now it was like, oh, here's this whole show that is kind of weekend update that didn't exist, you know, all those years ago, but I was like, I'm not going to get that. I assumed I'll do this audition, I'll come back, I'll start working on the chocolate news. I met a guy who lived down the street from me who was going to sell me an old pickup truck for like 500 bucks, and so I was like, okay, that'll that'll be how I get to work, like this will be my life, and I'd sort of resign myself to that. The day of the Daily Show audition, I met with a friend to get lunch. I wound up drinking <laughs> at lunch, and then halfway through like a, a 7 and 7 was like, oh, I, I probably shouldn't get drunk. I, I have a job interview. <laughs> yeah. And then I went in, I did the audition, and I remember afterwards John saying, when can you start? And I thought he was joking. And so I was just like, that's a shitty joke. And I didn't say that to him, but I was just like, ha ha. And then they sent me to another room and they were talking. And then afterwards, one of the EPs was like, hey, do you want to take a tour? And I was kind of like, no, you haven't offered me a job. Like, why would you? But he starts taking me on a tour and people had, people had been watching on the feed right. that was in the building. They'd seen my audition. Right. And people were like, hey, that was really funny. And I'm just like, this is so weird because nobody's offered me a job. And now you're just showing me everything I'm not going to have. Yeah. And then I left uh, after, like, it got uncomfortable. And after about 20 minutes, I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, uh, And Laura Kraft, my, my friend uh, who got me back into stand-up, was working at uh, the Colbert Report. And so I walked over to go see her. And she was like, how'd it go, and all this stuff. And then I got a phone call, and it was my manager, and he was like, they offered you the job. And Laura and I were standing outside of the studios, and so Laura, I gave the phone to her, so she's the one who got the information, and she's just screaming, and she's like, oh my God, congratulations, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) And then I had to leave, and they had a car that was going to pick me up at the Daily Show and take take me back to the airport. And so... As I'm going back to get that car, there's a line of people waiting to go in as the audience for the Colbert Report, and they all heard and saw this exchange between Kraft and I, and these people in line are like, hey, congratulations! <laughs> for what? <laughs> and I just got nervous and was like, mm, you'll find out, and then yeah. sort of ran. And But these are all the people that like those were the people I was with when I got the Daily Show. <laughs> the audience
0: for the Colbert. Yeah, it was <laughs> just
1: the audience for Steven's show and and then yeah, and then I got I got on a plane, I flew back, I wound up uh going to a bar, uh this bar out here called Our Bar. So I I just took a super shuttle and I came in and was like, I got this job and everybody was really happy and I got drunk and passed out in the bar and then went to the went to a diner slept till three woke up to a bunch of voicemails that were like hey so they need you to start on monday and this was friday and they were like can you pack your things up in a weekend i was like yeah i don't really have anything i i've already i lost my apartment yeah yeah i got nothing i i just need to burn some cds onto my computer and i'm good and so yeah i I moved in a weekend and it was memorial day weekend i I moved to new york and but it was that idea of full circle where it was i'd always i always thought l a was gonna be this temporary stop to get me back to new york and it was nine and a half years, but it got me back to new york and and how long were you on the daily show uh, four and a half four and a half years almost five
0: yeah, uh-huh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: And you got along with John?
1: <laughs> nah. <laughs> on and off. Okay. You know, he was a boss. Yeah. I think at the end of the day he was he was a boss. Like I I think sadly, that thing that you know, that whatever that thing is that I have of like one uh a paternal figure, yeah. I think I assumed on some level, oh this guy like this guy he's the one who hired me like he brought me here and not just brought me here but it was like to New York the place for 10 years I was I hated LA and I wanted back in New York so badly and it's like this guy brought me back to New York not just that gave me the job I'd always wanted was somebody that I I think I probably put a lot unbeknownst to both him and myself put a lot on him of just no, this guy saved my life, and right. and really on some level did because by the end in L.A. I was really depressed. Like I was in a real shit way where I was just like, I really was like, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know what the next year is gonna be if there's a next year. Like it was just bad, right? And I think the people who knew me knew how how sad I was, and so it was this, just oh, this guy took me. Out of all of that and i was so appreciative and i think i really wanted to connect with him in that sort of paternal way yeah that, you know like a professor green or right. like you know and that wasn't his thing like he just you know and and so that never we never had that closeness we never had that and i don't think he really you know he was a guy that just kind of kept a distance with people he wanted to keep a distance with and so You know, we'd have conversations Is that most people, from (laughs) his observation? I think I let other people tell their stories, but I think, you know, he was a guy that kind of, he stayed in his office, and it wasn't like he hung out. And, you know, I mean, I worked on that show for four and a half years. We never really hung out outside the show. Honestly, the longest conversation we ever had was the day I quit, and that was, like, the most real conversation. And it was sad, because I honestly thought in that conversation, I was like, I wish we'd, I wish this, this was how I wished I w- had been able to talk to you right. for four and a half years. And maybe I wouldn't be leaving now if we had this kind of relationship where it just, where it just even felt like respect. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, cause you can be a boss and still respect your employees. It felt like, he was a boss, and especially by the end, where it was just like, "Oh no, i don't I don't feel like if something were to happen to me tomorrow, this guy would give a shit and right. so it was yeah. what happened what happened? well, like I said, I don't think we ever there was never like a major closeness, but then eventually by by the end, we kind of we wound up having some blow ups and it there was one where he was he wanted to do something on the show that I didn't necessarily agree with and it kind of offended me, and I brought it up and he in what way he had done something on the show where he had he had done an impression of Herman Cain on the show and I was on a field shoot and so I didn't. Actually, I wasn't there for the process of of it, but I saw it. I watched it that night from my hotel, and I remember the way he did the impression. It was a little weird. It was kind of like it reminded me of like a kingfish type of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so it it I, and I and I just remember like, oh, that's weird. Why'd you do that? Racially insensitive. It seemed yeah, and it didn't seem intentional, but it just seemed like it seemed like one of those things like. Like, whenever Robin Williams would do, like, a black voice, yeah, like, that, for as, for as talented as Robin Williams was, I remember, I once got to improvise with Robin Williams, and I walked out in a scene, and it was me and another black improviser named Thomas Fowler, and we walked out, and Robin Williams was immediately like, hey, bloods, what's happening? And we both just shut him down, and it was just like, we just spoke and acted as ourselves, and It was this thing where it was just like, I know you think you're being funny, but that really, like, you've just reduced us to that's all we can be is just jive, jive motherfuckers. And so. Where was that? At UCB? That was at UCB. And so, with this with John, it was that same sort of thing where it's like, I don't think this is from a malicious place, but I think this is from a sort of naive, kind of ignorant place. Right. That is like oh, no, you just did this and you weren't thinking about it. It's just the voice that came into your head. And so it bugged me. And other people heard it. Like, you know, obviously it's on the show. And so some people on Fox News started attacking him and they were like, oh, look at Jon Stewart, the bastion of liberal thought, being a racist. And so he wanted to respond because I think they saw an opening and they just kept stabbing the knife in. So he wanted to respond. He wanted to do this thing where he was like, everything I do is racist. And he was like, all my impressions are racist. And he, he wanted to do, he wanted to do that. And so we had this email list serve that would go around. And so that was what came out of it was like, John wants to respond that way. And I remember I emailed back and I I said, I gotta be honest. When I heard it, it bothered me. It, it, it bugged me a little bit. And one of the producers and I think the head writer both wrote back and they were like, sorry yeah no we'll talk to him about it and you know we don't want that and I was the one black writer there and so it was this thing where it's like you know when you're the one you speak for whether you want to or not you wind up speaking for everybody and you speak for all the black people you speak but you also at least for me I always felt like I have to speak for all the minorities because there's nobody speaking for them necessarily if something seems questionable and so with this it was like this is something that, yeah, it just hit me and it was like, yeah, this made me uncomfortable. Maybe we just let this one die and I got to the writers meeting that morning, uh, and it was still full steam ahead with this idea. And so I was kinda like, Oh, that's weird. Like and so I raised a concern. I was like, Are you sure you wanna do this? Like this feels like why should we do this like what
0: exactly was you thought it was not it was not taking responsibility necessarily and it was just uh obscuring the fact
1: well it also felt like it also felt like to call it out like you're just playing into their game in that it just felt like by getting overly defensive about it to me being overly defensive makes it seem like you recognize that there is there was a problem Mm mm-hmm and if you're not gonna if you're not gonna address the problem right and you're just gonna get defensive about it. Right. That that always feels like to me, and this is I think what I said in the meeting was like this feels like one of those instances when somebody says, I have a lot of black friends. Right. Like and so I just it felt like let's not like why get into a battle with some people on Fox News over this just let it die. I mean, it'll die on the vine anyway, if if, you know, rather than deal with it, or if you want to deal with it, deal with it. But it just felt yeah, and so it, I was and and honestly, it was one of those things too, where it's like when when you all brought me to this show, you made it very clear that I was a writer and I was a correspondent, and that you wanted my voice, but that also I wasn't just here because of the color of my skin. I was here because I was the funniest person and I was somebody that can contribute. And so just from the standpoint as a writer to like he just kind of kept shutting me down where I was like, Hey, why are we why are we doing this? And eventually I think I'd raised it a couple times and it just kept moving ahead, moving ahead. And then I think eventually I was like look, I got to be honest. And I just kind of spoke from my, you know, from my, my place. And I was just like, I got to be honest when I heard it, I wasn't here when it all happened. I was in a hotel and I cringed a little bit. It it was, it, it bothered me and he got incredibly defensive. And I remember he, he was like, what are you trying to say? There's a tone in your voice. And I was like, there's no tone. And I was like, this just, it bothered me. And he was like, I was like, it sounded like Kingfish. And then he just kind of, he got upset. And he stood up and he was just like, fuck off. I'm done with you. And he just started screaming at to me. And he screamed it a few times. And he was just like, fuck off. I'm done with you. And he stormed out. And then I didn't know if I'd been fired. And again, this is the guy who saved me. Yeah. And now he's multiple times to my face, I'm done with you, fuck off. And I remember he went to his office and so I just followed him because I was just like, oh, I don't know if I got fired. And we got into the argument, like it continued there and he yelled and he never saw my point and I still never knew if I got fired in the same way that I never knew I got hired. Yeah, I never knew that I got fired. Yeah. And was there a I, crowd I, of
0: people waiting to get into Colbert? <laughs> 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 there when you been. got the call, yeah, but I and,
1: I and I didn't get fired. But he, I think, sadly, and I and I think that's the thing in a job like that, because you're getting shots from so many sides, you sometimes l- need an outlet to explode on, and that outlet became me, and he, yeah, and he, we we wound up in this argument, and it it went for a long time, and about racism basically yeah and he was kind of like you know you've never had a problem with any of the other voices i do and i was kind of like i don't what are you talking about and he was like you've never had a problem with my chuck schumer and i was like i don't know what the fuck you mean and then he wound up doing a chuck schumer impression that's when you know an an argument is happening between like comedians when it's just like he starts doing an impression like you've never bitched about that and it's just like and I remember being like, well, I'm not Jewish. Like, I like you're Jewish, so I trust that whatever, whatever heat you're going to take, that heat is going to fall back on you. And something like this, I represent my community, and I represent my people, and I try to represent them the best that I can. I got to be honest, if something seems questionable, because if not, then I don't want to be in a position where I am being untrue not just to myself but to my culture because that's exploitative and that's I'm just allowing I'm allowing something to continue if I if I'm just gonna go along with it and sadly I think that's you know that's the burden that I think a lot of people have to have to have when you are the one that you you represent something bigger than yourself whether you want to or not and So we wound up in this argument and eventually the argument, like one of the dogs, we had dogs in the office and one of the dogs came in and kind of helped calm things down because she started pawing at me and then one of the producers came in and was like, hey, we got to do a show. And so... So it was bad. Like the entire staff was like, what is happening? Yeah. Well, and everyone could hear it. I was told later, like the dogs were shaking.
0: Oh my God. Because
1: they could hear everything and everyone... And what was initially him yelling at me in front of the writers and producers was now the whole building could hear it. And so it was just this terrible thing and it was and I remember like we re we got everybody back together and John apologized to the room and said, you know, he forgot that he was the boss and you know, and I was a fucking wreck and I wound up I left I like Somebody was like, if you want to go home, that's cool. And I was like, no, nah, but I'm going to go for a walk. And I went outside, and there's like a baseball field across from our offices. And I just sat in the bleachers and I fucking, I just cried. Like it was just like, I was shaking and I just, and I just sat there by myself in the bleachers and fucking cried. And it was this sad thing where it's like, that's how I feel. That's how I feel in this job. I feel alone. I feel, you know, that. And that's not to say that I don't have a lot of people there that I love and a lot of people that I'm friends with, but it was just, like, it felt so weird at this moment that, like, for everybody else, you know, you still have a show. You still as business as usual. And then, for me, here I am in empty bleachers, just by myself, fucking just jacked up on sadness and adrenaline. And I eventually sort of put myself back together and I went back into the job and you know, it's weird cause everybody knew what happened and we had to kind of go back to work. And,
0: and no one does that to him.
1: You're not in you in your four years there. there, there people were... challenge him. I mean, I think people challenge him all the time and that's, I, I think that's what that is. I think what has been good for his success at that job is that people, people can challenge him and you know, there can be debates there hadn't, in my experience, never been an explosion like that. And so that was something that, you know, he treated everybody with respect for the most part, even if it was like, well, we don't like your idea. There was some respect that happened. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I've emailed about this. I've now brought it up twice. And now I'm bringing it up a third time. And the third time I bring it up, I'm getting screamed at. And that, and screamed at in a way that wasn't, you know, there's a tactful way to be like, look, I see your objections, but we have to do this show. And this is the show I want to do, and I'm the boss. And there's a way to do it like that. And then there's a way that was just like, oh no, this, like, you just exploded on me. And so, you know, I stayed for a year after that, uh, but my contract was almost up after that. And I was kind of like, I'm done. Like, I don't, I don't want to go back. And a couple people, John Oliver, uh, was like please stay and a couple other people had asked me to stay and so it was kind of like okay i'll stay one more year and i stuck around one more year and it was just miserable and i feel like he and i there would be moments where i would hear through the grapevine like john's wondering about your attitude and like and it was this thing where it's like he would never come to me like we would never talk it was always like john thinks you're unhappy and it's like Well, yeah, I remember that fight we got into. Like, that still never got settled. And even, you know. Did they do the bit? He did the bit. And then after that, I remember he did the bit on the show. And I went into his office afterwards. And I was just like, at the end of the night, I was kind of like, I just want to make sure we're cool. And he was like, yeah, we're cool. I, you know, I still don't see your, I, I don't see your side of it but I shouldn't have yelled at you. And that was kind of the apology. And so it never really, we never had that talk. And, and it was just kind of like a strange thing of like, yeah, I just shouldn't have yelled at you. Like, uh, right. and so then we continued for a year and it was just, I just, I never felt, I never felt comfortable. And it always felt like there would be these little moments throughout where I would hear from other people. John thinks you're mad. And I'd be like, I'm not mad, and then they'd go report back to John, and you know we'd see each other in the halls and it'd be like, hey, what's up, whatever, but we never. It, oh, it's it, horrible. It was just very, it was very tense and yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it was just a strange thing, and and so then when I left, it really my deal was up again, and I was kind of like, I'm done. Like, I I I want to go and. I stayed that one more year and that one more year I stayed. I was just a, I stayed and I was only a correspondent. I wasn't a writer. I I left the room because I was just like, I don't want to be in that room anymore. And also there was some money shit. So it was just like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, This. Is, I'll just be a correspondent. And so that was miserable because at least when I was part of the staff as a writer as well, like the days are different as a writer. I came in at nine and whether I was on the show or not, I was contributing to some to to the show and I loved that show and I love I, you know I loved what I could do with that show and so when I was just a correspondent I didn't it's like sitting on the bench it's right. like yeah. if you don't have yeah. anything to do you're just sitting there waiting for them to call you right. and it's like you're waiting to get the call like okay we need you tonight and so to have gone from basically working as a writer and helping to produce things to then waiting for your name to get called and still my office was still with the writers so it's like i'd see them you know the writers would come into my office because there was a i shared my office with another writer and you know they'd have to work as a gang on something and i'm just kind of like sitting there watching it and occasionally i'd throw something out there and you know they'd be like oh that's good and it's kind of like yeah, well, I used to do that. I, yeah, yeah. I, I I was one of you. Remember? Oh god, it's like uh, torture. Yeah, and so the whole thing just felt it just it felt like you're a ghost walking through the halls. And so I left, and I was happy to leave. And and yeah, and then I I went on my David Carradine journey.
0: And yeah. and, and now you have a show that I've done several times, a live show that's always good. I, mean,
1: and- I do, yeah, I do a live show in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I uh, I put out a special last year, and then you know i got to figure out whatever the next thing is going to be that will actually be a consistent paycheck and uh you know and it's weird and even i should say for all that with john and i we recently have emailed like i don't i don't have his phone number or anything like that like that's you know it is like boss employee right. like we sure. you know and but i had an email for him and so i i uh, i emailed him i emailed him initially because somebody when they were looking for hosts my name or first I think I emailed him when I heard he was quitting and so I said congratulations and I also still appreciative and I still said you know thanks man for giving me an opportunity and he wrote back and it was it seemed kind of like a, a little bit of a nice fence mending because we wound up just kind of just having a quick back and forth and then I think we sort of tossed back and forth a joke about football and uh, and so I was like, all right, cool. And then I think somebody, when there was all the talk of like who would replace him, somebody had suggested my name to him and he suggested it to the network. And so I wrote him just to say thanks for that. And and then just more recently, there's been, you know, he's got his last show. And so somebody was like, well, do you want to go? And I was kind of on the fence and, you know, cause not everything was resolved between us. And right. So So I emailed him recently and I was kind of like, Uh, I'd said I wasn't going and people kept trying to talk me into going and so then I emailed him recently to be like hey I just I gotta be honest I'm on the fence about doing something because I don't think we've ever had this conversation that you know the last year that I was at the show was miserable and a lot of that I put on that fight and I put on everything that happened as a result of that and that you know, we never communicated. And I I just talked and I just basically said, you know, this is everything, this is all the stuff I always wanted to say to you, but never did, partly because I was afraid of another explosion like that last one. And so, and that explosion really fucked me up because I grew up in a house where people exploded on each other like that, and I don't like that. And also, I'm a guy who, you know sadly i think looks for mentors and looks for paternal figures and i i put that on you and i shouldn't have but i put that on you and then to have you explode on me that way it really like that shattered everything you know it's like in the same way in the same way hearing like my my sister say my dad was a deadbeat it's like that's a you know it's a sobering moment when you see that this person you've turned into a hero is just a, a a mortal. And, but also that they could do something, you know, with my dad, it was a different thing. But with this, it was like, yeah, you treated me with so little respect and that hurt in such a huge, deep way. And, it took me, you know, the last year of being at the show, trying to reconcile with it, where there would be days I'd walk to the studio and I would just be angry. And I would just, I'd have to walk, I'd have to take a lap around the block. Because as I got closer and closer, those feelings of like, just of like, I should have punched him. Like, I should have, like, I like he, like, that was fucking bullshit. And just fury, and I would just have to walk around a block and calm down. Or sadness of just, like, this thing that I loved so much. And it's like, now, like, it's fucking bullshit. And I would just wind up having to walk, walk around and just calm myself to go in a building. And so that last year was sort of that. And then the first year away from the show was this sense of, okay, I'm free of this thing. And now trying to reconcile with it. And now trying to... Come to terms with it, and then how did you respond? So he was, you know, he when he was, laid it all out. When I laid it all out, he didn't see it that way. He didn't think that that last year things were different between us. He didn't. He thought that fight we got into was just two people just having an argument, and so the emotion of it he never really saw, and uh you know but he was like he kind of said you know sort of as a in that job it's a tough you know you realize when you're in charge that it's hard uh it's you know it's a it's a hard gig and not everybody's that is going to be sort of heard and he kind of apologized you know as as much as as he could uh for you know if i if i felt hurt and Uh, And he said, you know, I'd love for you to be at the last show because you helped to build this thing. And so I was like, I appreciate that. And, you know, I still don't know if I'm going to show up. But uh, when is it? August 6th. So you should just
0: go. Probably. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because like, it's interesting to me how self-aware you are around the emotional components of the situation. And at some point, right, you got to take responsibility for that and just suck it up in a way.
1: Yeah, no. And that's well and, that, and and honestly if anything I'm to me I feel like because because I wrote that email and because we kind of talked about yeah. it I'm I'd I'm more inclined to go simply because it's like okay, yeah, at least now going you know you know how I felt. Right, you were honest
0: about it. You 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 you, you kind of cleared your side of the street. Yeah. And he knows.
1: Yeah. And that is like, if I'm going to show up, I don't want to show up with any false pretense that, you know, this, I am grateful for that job. And I love that job. And I love so many people in that building. Right. And I loved what I was able to do with that job. But there was also a lot of pain there. And so I think in that way, it's kind of like, I don't know, I'm glad that I was able to at least, like you said, clean my side of the street and just say, this is what I felt. And if I show up, you know, it's not like we were probably, you know, it's not like we were going to toss a football around or something like that anyway. Well, that's
0: that's the weird thing about having those childhood needs not met, is that, you know, you go through life with that, with those expectations, and they'll never be met. You you know, the parent's not going to meet them because they're gone. Right. And, you know, no one else is really going to meet them fully because you got a chip on your shoulder about the parent not meeting them. And at at some point, you know, in order to get any kind of closure – you, know, you just got to live with the pain and parent yourself. I mean that's the it's fucked up, but I mean it's like there's a reconciliation within yourself that has to happen for you to have any peace around that shit.
1: Yeah. And that, and that's the thing I feel like uh, you know, for me it it wasn't even about like, oh, I don't want to go. It was less about I think him and more just I've already said goodbye to the thing. Yeah. And he and I already had the conversation we needed to have, but On some level, you know, I think for other people, they've said, oh, no, you should go. You should be a part of it because you were a part of it. Yeah. And for yourself. Well, and I guess it's that thing of like, oh, yeah, you have a claim to this. And in that same way of, you know, whatever isolation you felt in that on those bleachers, like that's not you don't have to you don't have to go sit on those bleachers if you don't want to. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Yeah, like that. You don't have to. You had you sat on those bleachers once, but you don't have to keep going back out there. That right. you can sure you can walk in that building and you can be a part of this thing because you were a part of it. And on some level, the fact that you're there is as much an acknowledgement of everything that you experienced, good and bad, of your own accomplishments as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, but that it's also like. So I think I've had a tendency in life to just say like, oh, yeah, I'm not I just won't deal with it and fuck it. I'll just stay away.
0: Right. But you don't want to like at some point, you're martyring yourself or or feeling sorry for yourself in those situations. And isolating yourself is sort of another way of making it more about you than.
1: Yeah. But I think by being a part of it, it's like, oh, no, you're a part of this thing. You're there. You have as much of a claim to this. And also your experience while bad Wasn't the whole of your experience, and it wasn't the whole of this experience, and so you have just as much a claim to enjoy that and be a
0: part of that. So, and also transcend something for yourself in a way. Yeah, maybe. Sure, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see if you go. Oh
1: no, I mean, I'm yeah, but it's also one of those things where it's I don't really, I don't really get into the emotion of that stuff. I don't, I don't uh, like the pomp and circumstance doesn't really. No, I get you, I get you, but uh, you know, but do it for the people. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 yeah. That's uh yeah, I suppose that's uh see I don't I don't have that connection to an audience the way that you do where it's like, you know, you're sending them books and doing all that stuff. But you don't know you do. But I mean to the people that love that show
0: may have watched every day. Oh, every sure, show. sure, sure sure. So, you know, whether you whether you think you have that connection or not, they're gonna be like, There's why it Right, right. You know. But I think
1: it's just I'm such a I'm I'm such a sort of anti-mushy person that it's like even if like if somebody's like there's Wyatt I'm like oh yeah but dude if I can learn how to take a
0: little of the love in (laughs) you (laughs) you know and I was a tough nut to crack you can (laughs) you
1: can take a little of the love I guess yeah all right buddy that's closure that's wow look at that we've yeah you feel all right oh no I feel fine it's uh yeah how do you feel it's great seeing you it's good to see you too and uh, and you don't
0: seem depressed, things are you'll figure it out. you're not in a dark place
1: no, I mean, I think for all that stuff it was it was such a great thing. Every one of those experiences i don't I don't regret any of them because I think they've all been things that have just made me see life and realize that I don't no, life is bigger than this moment. Yeah. All you have is this moment, but it's also. It's bigger than this moment, Sure, too. because it's, it's bigger than this moment because of the moments that uh, are happening around you
0: and also all the moments that got you to this place. Yeah. 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 You're getting wisdom.
1: Some. There's some gray hair showing up in the beard. Yeah, all right. Well, that's going to happen to everybody. All right, buddy. All right.
0: All right. That was uh, Wyatt Sinek, the life of Wyatt Sinek, a show business life for sure. And not an easy one. So, go to WTFpod.com and check out those dates. I'm going to be in Dublin at Vicker Street the 2nd of September, uh, London uh, at the South Bank Center on the 3rd and 4th of September. I've also got uh, shows this weekend, tomorrow night in uh, Boulder Theater, at the Boulder Theater in Boulder, Colorado, and Saturday night, the 25th, at uh, in Denver at the Paramount. And I've got, uh, I've got the guitar hooked up. Let's see if I can find something for those of you who are still listening.